Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Colleen, we are diving into Revelation chapter 14. Well, that's pretty scary. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what I want to ask you. What does it bring up for you to be moving into this chapter of Revelation? Well, I remember Revelation 14 from my Adventist days as just being about the three angels' messages, which of course I sort of knew, but sort of didn't know. And I didn't have any remembrance until we started going through this book and I started looking ahead. I had no remembrance of the fact that the first five verses are a whole rerun of the 144,000. I did not remember that they showed up again in this chapter. The 144,000 open the chapter about the three angels' messages. (laughs) They're not connected exactly, but I didn't remember that. It's interesting to me to discover that this whole chapter has three separate visions and three separate subjects, really. And today, we're going to look at the first one, the 144,000. But what about you, Nikki? Well, honestly, as an Adventist, I wouldn't have been able to tell you which chapter the three angels were in. Oh, interesting. So if you had asked me about Revelation chapter 14, I would have said, what's that about? (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) But certainly, the three angels' message was a mystery to me. Yeah. I don't remember being directly taught the three angels message. I grew up around it and I'm sure I heard it in Mm -hmm. uh, my freshman year in high school. Yeah. Uh, What I remember the most, honestly, about the three angels is the logo. Oh, it's everywhere. It was everywhere. It's everywhere. I believe it was on the stained glass in the sanctuary at Monterey Bay Academy, or Mm -hmm. maybe it was just the outside wall of the, of the church there. Yeah, And I knew that it had something to do with Ellen White and our proclamation as Adventists. Um, Right. But I wouldn't have known which chapter it was in. And so if you had told me that we were going to Revelation 14, it wouldn't have bothered me probably. I just would have been (laughs) curious. But but I really enjoyed studying these first five verses, preparing for this podcast. And I really appreciate the way that Pastor Gary Inrig taught it in his word search video called The Lamb's Victory and God's Cup of Wrath. It's number 36. And we're actually breaking that video up so that we can just do a section by section. So if if our listeners go and listen to the video, they're going to hear a sneak peek for next week's podcast as well. Mm -hmm. But the Christian perspective on the passage is so entirely, completely different from Adventism's Yes, I agree. In fact, this whole thing with the 144,000 and just these five verses that we're looking at today, this has been like new for me, mm-hmm. new information, new understanding, new insight. Even though I've read the words, it's new to me and not nearly as vague as I had thought. So without further ado, <laughs> let's read those first five verses. Okay. So again, we're reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Wow. Before we talk through these verses one at a time, by way of reminder, let's just remember where we've come so far. The backbone of Revelation is that there are seven seals and seven trumpets followed by seven bowls, and these are followed by the return of the Lord. That's the big picture, starting with chapter four after we read the letters to the churches. And then what we discover as we walk through Revelation is that there's an interlude between the trumpets and the bowls. And we are currently inside that interlude. Now, that interlude lasts several chapters. The first part of the interlude is chapters 12 and 13. And chapters 12 and 13 show the final satanic outbreak on the earth that's centered on the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the false trinity, as we talked about. So Satan comes to earth in a rage because he has just a little bit of time and he's going to make every attempt to crush God's people. But then we move into chapter 14, where we come into the next part of the interlude. And what do we discover here, Nikki? Well, we're going to have a shift in perspective. So in chapters 12 through 13, we're seeing, like you said, this demonic outbreak. And then in chapter 14, we're going to see an anticipatory vision of what God is going to do, how he's going to bring all of this to a culmination and to an end. I thought that was very helpful. I'd never heard these chapters explained that way. In a sense, in this interlude between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, we're seeing, first of all, the outworking of the rage of Satan on the earth, and then we're seeing God's plan and God's doings, his, his work behind the scenes as he culminates earth's history. So now we're seeing things as we would see them from looking at what God is doing. I love the way Pastor Gary teaches, and he will outline what we're going to be walking into. He'll outline it the way scripture outlines it. And so when he talks to us about this being a picture of how it will all end, he says it's given in a series of three visions. The first is of the 144,000, which we just read about. Mm -hmm. And next week, we'll look at the three angels message and then the final judgment at the end of the earth. And the contrast between 12 and 13 and 14 is it couldn't be more dramatic. Chapters 12 and 13 describe terror. The world is terrified. Chapter 14, we start seeing God is in control. In spite of how bad things get on the earth, in spite of the demonic terror, in spite of the fact that all that has gone on, the bold judgments of God are coming. He has the last word. And then there will be something related to the beast at the end, and God is going to take care of him. So we've already read the first five verses. Let's go back and start talking through this from verse one. So Nikki, in verse one, what is the first thing that John sees when he looks? He sees the lamb and that he was standing on Mount Zion. Who's the lamb? Well, the Lamb is the Lord Jesus, and Gary pointed out that this is the 13th time in the book that the name has been ascribed to him since he was introduced back in chapters 4 and 5 in the throne room. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about this before we came in here to record. In fact, we were talking about it together. Chapters 4 and 5, where we see the Lamb bearing the marks of slaughter that's given 
the title deed to the earth, the only one qualified to open it because he's their creator, he's their savior, he has taken human flesh, he has borne the penalty of human sin, he has broken the curse on humanity. He's the only one qualified to open those seals on the title deed to the earth to bring about the end and the resolution of all things. And it kind of makes me emotional, Nikki, because mm-hmm. I didn't see Jesus that way mm-hmm. as an Adventist, even though I was told he's going to win, probably, because, you know, he will. I had this great controversy thing in my head where I was playing a role and Satan was out there fighting and Jesus was working hard to win the hearts of men and to keep me obedient to the law. None of this business of Jesus being the qualified one to open the seals and to carry out justice on the earth, it didn't have the meaning it has to me now. Well, he wasn't sovereign. That's the difference. And and we've read all over this letter, it was given to him. It was given to him. It was given to him. The enemy has been given permission to do the things that he's done in the book of Revelation. It's all according to God's sovereign plan. So in Adventism, you have a duel, but in yeah. scripture, you don't. You really don't. No, there's no dual. No. And the thing that I love about the lamb in prophecy in Daniel and here in Revelation, when we see these beasts and the way they're described, they are animals with the exception of that fourth beast, which Mm -hmm. is a culmination of all kinds of things, but they're animals that represent the nature of the power. Right. And so when we look at Jesus, he's described as a lamb. So not only is he gentle, but he's lowly because we are called God's sheep. We are sheep and he identifies with us. And here he is standing with 144,000 people. He is identifying with them as the sovereign creator and ruler over the earth and the one who is bringing about all of these events. Yet he's gentle and lowly. He's the lamb at the same time he's bringing about justice. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that as an Adventist, I did not see Jesus as the just judge, even though I was told he was the judge. But this didn't really resonate with me. It was all just metaphor, whatever. But here, he is standing on Mount Zion. So what do we know about Mount Zion? What is that? (laughs) Well, in the Old Testament, Mount Zion is usually referring to Israel, where the temple is. But we do also have other parts of scripture that speak of it as a spiritual kingdom. We read about that in Hebrews. You've Mm -hmm. come to Mount Zion. And so there's debate about what this actually means. Some people say that it's a spiritual city. It's the people in heaven. Mm -hmm. So this would be taking place, according to their understanding, this would be taking place in heaven. And then there are others, and I think it's a compelling argument, who say that when you use the literal normative reading and interpretation in the Old Testament, that this is in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons they give is connected to verse 2, and we'll get there. Exactly. So who is standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Well, according to to our interpretation of chapter 7, it's 144,000 sons of Israel from each of the 12 tribes that are listed there. And I don't know how we can get around what Revelation 7 tells us about them. It's an interesting thing that the 144,000, some people say it's a representative number that refers to all the redeemed. But the fact is that if we remember chapter 7, we see 
that the 144,000 are said to be those who are sealed with the name of God and the name of the Lamb on their foreheads, and that they are the sons of Israel from every tribe. So here in chapter 14, it seems most likely that these are the same 144,000 we met in chapter 7, and that they are Israelites, and that they are victorious. In this passage, they are victorious because they were sealed before the tribulation in chapter 7. And now they are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. So we see that Mount Zion is a name for Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem or the the temple or the place where the temple is. Historically, it was used that way. And it's a symbol in this case of the people of God and their dwelling. Wherever it's located, that's what it is. In this passage, we see an echo here of something from the Old Testament. What does it tell us in Psalm 2? So Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging against God. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And in verse 4, it says... He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And in the psalm, it goes on to talk about Jesus the Messiah and how he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That is a most compelling phrase to me, because I don't see any time in history when that has happened. And the kings of the earth are summoned to kiss the sun. That's right. So you have different nations, different kings who are being addressed. You have the Messiah on Mount Zion ruling with a rod of iron. It gives a picture of Jesus in Israel preparing to rule in the millennial kingdom when other nations will come. And submit to him. Based on Psalm 2, based on other things in the Old Testament that we aren't actually going to take the time to quote in this podcast, but just looking at the context and the actual grammar here, I see this verse as suggesting that this Mount Zion that John is seeing is the Mount Zion on earth. He looks and he sees the Lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. And then what is it in verse 2 that gives us confirmation for this? Sure. This is like a pattern that we've seen in previous visions that he's had. We get an indication of where he's located. Mm -hmm. He says, I heard a voice from heaven. So a voice comes out of heaven, which indicates he's not there. He's not there. He's here. Mm -hmm. He's on earth. So he sees Mount Zion. He sees the lamb. He sees the 144,000 with the father's name and the lamb's name written on their foreheads. And then he hears a voice from somewhere else that he's not. And that somewhere else is heaven. And what does the voice sound like? It sounds like many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. In the Old Testament, what do those particular sounds describe? What are they used to describe? In the Old Testament, the sound of many waters and the sound of loud thunder symbolizes things of great power. Gary pointed out that if you've ever stood by Niagara Falls, the sound of those falls, it's overwhelming. So he's hearing a voice, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like... Another thing as well, the sound of harpists 
playing on their harps. That's an interesting contrast with thunder and roaring waters. Yeah, it is. But it does suggest many beings playing a musical instrument. It's loud. It does. You know, when we hear thunder in Revelation up to this point, it's along with judgment. But here you have it with harpists. Isn't that interesting? So it's powerful. Yeah. But it's not scary. (laughs) Yeah. And then in verse three, we learn the next thing he hears in relationship to this sound from heaven. He hears the voice, first of all. And now in verse three, we read, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. Just looking at the grammar, who are the they? The they is probably the loud voice. It it indicates a unified message. It does. does. And especially since the voice was like the sound of harpists playing harps. That suggests there's more than one being that he's hearing that's creating this loud, tumultuous, thunderous, actually victorious sound. Mm -hmm. And they sang a new song. What is that confirms that this song is being sung in heaven? They're singing it before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Again, he said he heard it come out of heaven. And these are the creatures that we met in Revelation 4 and 5 in the description of the throne room of God in heaven. So he hears this sound. He hears it with many voices, apparently, singing in front of the throne, in front of the elders, in front of the creatures. And then we learn that no one could learn that song except for certain people. And who were those certain people? It was the 144,000 who were standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Who had been purchased from the earth. Well, what does purchased from the earth mean? Well, that's redemption. Exactly. The way I read this at this point, using just the location, the directions he's hearing, is that the 144,000 with the Lamb are standing on Mount Zion on the earth, and that they, along with John, are hearing the sound from heaven. Now, whether we want to argue that the 144,000 themselves are singing this song or not, clearly they're hearing it. It's something in their experience at that moment. But I see this as suggesting that the 144,000 are on the earth. This magnificent song is in heaven and that they're all hearing this happening in heaven before the throne, before the elders, before the living creatures. And only those 144,000 could learn the song. Gary pointed out that this concept of singing a new song is a pattern in scripture. We read it a lot in the Old Testament. Again, it's Old Testament language. And he says that whenever we read about the the people of God singing a new song, it's a song in celebration of a victory that God gave them over their enemies. It's new because it celebrates a new work of God, a new act of God. It's not disparaging an old thing, but it's adding to this rich history of God's intervention in mankind. And it's celebrating him. And one of the things that I thought of, and this again is just me thinking as I read the text, when it says that only the 144,000 could learn it, it made me think of being born again. 
Yes. And the fact that only those who have been born of God can understand what that's like. That's not something that if someone had explained to me what it is to be born again as an Adventist, I might have come up with a conceptual idea of what it means, especially because they teach you in Adventism that it's baptism. Yeah. But the actual experience of being born again, of being changed, of scripture coming to life, of your desires changing, of everything looking different, it's a unique experience in the church. And so I think of these 144,000 standing here in Zion with the Lamb, singing a new song, celebrating a victory over their enemies, and that is a very unique experience for them. Yes, and you know, even for us who are born again at this point in history, our experience is going to be very different when the 144,000 are revealed. Our experience Mm -hmm. is going to be very different from theirs. Yeah. It was interesting. S. Lewis Johnson said this in his sermon on this passage. He says, I'm not surprised that these individuals sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders, and no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been purchased from the earth. This kind of song of redemption can only be sung by those who have been purchased. This reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 9 to 12. He says, concerning this salvation, he's writing, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Nikki, what's so interesting to me about what we're reading here in Revelation and what Peter says and what we learn even just in reading through the epistles, angels in heaven, the elect angels are, are not redeemed because they did not sin. And they're watching what's happening to us. And they're seeing Jesus come and die and rise and break death. And they're seeing us be born again and made alive by the Holy Spirit. And it's something they can only wonder at and marvel at and rejoice in, but they do not experience it. And here we read in Revelation 14 that not even they could learn this song that the 144,000 could learn. Only those who've been redeemed from the earth can learn this song. That's a song we're going to sing too. (laughs) So then in verse 4, it gets interesting. (laughs) (laughs) The description here of these 144,000 is that that these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. There is a lot of debate about what this means. Nobody really knows. We don't really know for sure what this means. The obvious interpretation is that they're unmarried males. The grammar is masculine here. But there's good reason, I think, too, to believe that this is using imagery that is going to make more sense as we move into the next chapters where we read about the prostitute, Babylon, and the idea of immorality and idolatry being about spiritual unfaithfulness. We see this in other parts of scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, 
I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So we do have this kind of picture of loyalty to Christ Mm -hmm. looking like the marriage. We do. It's also interesting that marriage in the Bible is never used as a term of defilement, but it's always considered honorable. Mm -hmm. The marriage bed is honorable and to be respected by all. I find an interesting fact of history that the monastic tradition in within um, monastic medieval Catholicism, and it's still somewhat continued today in the Roman Catholic priesthood, says that priests are to be celibate never married. But Paul told us in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 6, that a doctrine of demons is to forbid marriage, just like forbidding foods to be eaten that God gave us to eat with Thanksgiving. It's not possible to find arguments in the New Testament or the Old Testament to support the idea that marriage is a defilement, that a married man is being defiled by his wife. That's another reason why it doesn't seem likely that these virgins are virgins physically necessarily, but that this has something to do with being chaste and moral, that they're spiritually moral, that they are not idolatrous, that they're not worshiping other gods. Yeah. And the next sentence says, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So when we think back to chapter 13 and we remember what was going on there, that people were threatened with death if they didn't worship the image, if they didn't worship the beast. But these 144,000, they follow the lamb wherever he goes in spite of the threat, in spite of the risk. And so it really is a picture of loyalty. And then it says, these have been purchased, that's redemption again, from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This confused me, as I've been convinced through my reading of Scripture that the church would be with the Lord in heaven, that Christ is the first fruits. When I saw this, 144,000 being the first fruits, it was almost like a trigger back to oh, the Adventist, 144,000 is the remnant. Yeah. They're the first fruits of the church. They're the only ones that are going to be saved. That was kind of a, a bump into oh, Adventist theology. Mm-hmm. But Pastor Gary talked about first fruits in his teaching at Word Search, and he says that the concept of first fruits in scripture indicates that this is the first of a harvest. In the Old Testament, a harvest offering is brought at harvest time when the first of the new harvest is taken, and it's offered to God as a symbol that the first belongs to Him. It's a promise that more is yet to come. And so we do have Christ called the first fruits of those who are risen from the dead. He pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, we read the household of Stephanus were the first fruits of Achaia. They weren't the only ones in that area that came to faith, but they were the first fruits and there were more to follow. So if we look at our understanding now of the 144,000 being Israel, and they were sealed, Uh and we remember that in chapter 7, after we read about the 144,000, we saw a great multitude of saints who had come out of the tribulation. These were the people that the 144,000 had evangelized because they came from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. So they were the first fruits of a new work that God was doing. You know, that's really interesting because it's just taking me right back to Luke 
I have been memorizing the first couple chapters of Luke, and after Jesus was born and his parents brought him to the temple, this is in Luke 2, it says that they brought him to the temple after the days of their purification were completed to present him to God. And then there's a parenthetical verse that says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that was Jesus. The first born of something brand new that God was doing, the fulfillment of the symbol of the first fruits in Israel. And now the believers, the first fruits of the different groups of people are called first fruits. These first fruits of Israel, the national salvation that God promised would happen. I find that really interesting that there are different groups of people that are called firstfruits, like you mentioned Stephanus and his household, Anachiah, the first Gentile firstfruits. But here are the Jewish firstfruits. If Jesus was the firstfruits of something brand new that God was doing, and the first believers of the different groups of people are also called firstfruits, we can see our connection to the Lord Jesus as he fulfills the Old Testament shadows, and we become the living manifestation of that fulfillment. After reading that these are purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, this of course fits with what has already been said that they are virgins, that they are spiritually pure, they have not broken their marriage vows to Christ, if you will, they have followed him wherever he goes, and saying that they are virgins likely means that they have been faithful even to the point of death. There is no guile in them. There's no deception in them. And this is an interesting fact of what this means, this virginal purity, this spiritual purity of loyalty to Christ. This means that they are the opposite of those who take the mark of the beast. Because the work of the devil is to deceive. He is a counterfeiter. He is a deceiver. And those who take the mark of the beast are buying a deception, a consummate deception. They worship the beast as a god. But these, these 144,000 do not have the, any lie in their mouths. They don't have any impurity in them. And this leads us into what is said about them in verse 5, that no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. They have followed Christ. They have not fallen for the deception. So during the 4th century, during the persecutions of Diocletian, there were Christians who were given the opportunity to hand over their scriptures as a token of repudiation of faith. And some professing believers did this to spare themselves and their families persecution. Well, as a result, when the persecutions passed, they were considered traitors. Mm -hmm. And so the church had to figure out and I believe this was largely the Roman Catholic Church, they had to figure out what to do with these people who had been traitors, who weren't willing to die for their faith. And Gary pointed out that this is not what we see in Revelation when right. we look at the 144,000. They're not looking for a way to compromise. They're not willing to pretend to worship a false God in order to spare themselves. We just read, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So the no lie found in their mouth is a statement of integrity. And the fact that they're blameless isn't a statement about their perfect moral character, as I imagine the Adventists would argue. Oh, yeah. 
but it's actually more connected to the wording in the Old Testament that refers to a sacrifice needing to be blameless and pure without spot or blemish. So these are truly loyal and faithful people, which is just more reason to believe that the idea of them being virgins is more related to their spiritual purity than their actual state. I agree. So here we are seeing the victory of the 144,000. And Nikki, you were talking to me about one of the points that we learned from Pastor Gary that was really compelling about the sealing of the 144,000 in chapter 7 and then seeing them here. These 144,000 know that they don't need to worry about themselves because they're in the hands of a sovereign and holy God who has sealed them and who promises to keep them. Gary pointed out that in chapter 7, we saw 144,000 people sealed. And in chapter 14, we see 144,000 people standing with Christ. On the other end of all of those persecutions of the attack of the beast and the dragon that chased them into the wilderness, and yet all 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion with Christ. And it's not because of anything they did. It's because the lamb sealed them. You know, this is such an amazing thing to me. I never would have noticed this when I was an Adventist. But chapters 12 and 13, as we started out by saying, is all about the raging of the beast Mm -hmm. and about the people who will be deceived by him and will take his mark and worship him. And here we see the 144,000 who were sealed by the Lord Jesus before this tribulation, before this raging of the beast got really bad. And here at the other end of it, they are standing. God keeps us and the devil has no way to touch them, even though he tries. So the beast worshipers compromise their integrity for the sake of personal safety or gain. But the 144,000 exercise no deception and they're loyal to their Savior, not because they've perfected their characters by keeping the law and trying to pray a lot to be good. They have stayed loyal because they have trusted Jesus and have received the seal of our triune God, and He has kept them. As we finish the first five verses of Revelation 14, we see that God is still taking care of his chosen people from Israel, the remnant he said would be saved. We also see, by looking backwards and to chapter 7 and forwards, that there will be others who will also be the great multitudes standing by the sea in heaven, people whom apparently the 144,000 evangelized. And we see that there are people in heaven singing this song of victory, this new song, and that the 144,000 are joining in it, and that these are people who have been redeemed. A song that even the angels cannot learn. As we read this and we see the certainty of our salvation when we are trusting Jesus and sealed by His Spirit, I have to ask, are you sealed by the Holy Spirit? Have you trusted Jesus? Are you believing in His finished work of redemption, of atonement for your sin? Are you believing that He came to earth, God the Son wrapped in mortal flesh, and that He took your sin into Himself and hung on the cross to pay the full price for the atonement for your sin? That He took the wrath of God 
Are you believing that he really died? And on the third day, he rose again, shattering the death sentence that is ours by our legal nature, our legal right. That's what we're born into. But Jesus destroyed it for those of us who trust him and believe that he has finished the work. When we admit our sin and trust him, we are safe in him and sealed. And if you haven't trusted him, if you haven't been sealed by his Holy Spirit of promise, it's very simple. See what the Bible tells you. See what the Bible tells you about who you are and about who Jesus is. And trust him today so that you too can stand with the same confidence as 144,000 and learn that new song that only the redeemed can sing. And join us as we continue our walk through Revelation with a look at the three angels' message. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.